when I received the letter with the threat and with still pictures from the video, I could either step back or fight against it. And uh, I decided to fight back and uh, it was a big international scandal. I made sure that the whole world knows about it because these things needs to be punished. Impunity, that makes them bolder and bolder. And I decided that I have to fight back because otherwise it will not stop. We are losing our position every time we step back. Welcome to the Voices of Open Government, a show from the Open Government Partnership, where we explore how to make our democracies more transparent, participatory, inclusive, and accountable. In this season, we are exploring some of the big issues facing democracy by talking to the reformers, activists, journalists, and citizens who are on the ground right now in the middle of the fight. I'm your host, Stephanie Bluma. Civic space is the underpinning for open government. Among other things, it allows people to speak freely and advocate for change without fear of government reprisal. But it's eroding globally. According to Civicus, a nonprofit dedicated to strengthening civil society, only 3.1% of the world's population now live in a country with open civic space. Investigative journalist Hadija Esmalova has spent her career shedding light on corrupt practices in her home country of Azerbaijan. In this episode, Hadija shares how her reporting on government corruption led to blackmail, intrusive surveillance, and unjust imprisonment. Well, I was born in Azerbaijan, which was part of Soviet Socialist Union back then, USSR. So it was a communist regime. My father had a position in the the government. So it was quite a, one of those families who had a little bit different life than others, despite the fact that it was the communist regime and supposed to be like uh, quite equal for everyone. The changing point in my life was when I was, I guess I was 10 years old. So that was a football championship, the world football championship. And uh, USSR and Turkey were playing against each other. And I saw my family sitting in front of TV, my father and mother, they were Turkey team fans. And I was surprised with that. And I asked them, why are you doing this? USSR is our country and you are the fans of the Turkish team. And then my mother explained me everything about the occupation, the empire, the Soviet Union being actually a Russian empire and uh, us being Turks actually and being kins to Turkey and uh, that Russia tries to suppress our identity and uh, to make us forget our kinship with Turkey, to make us to forget about our Turkic roots. So it was a shock for me because like everything I've learned in school was about 
happiness and uh, prosperity in this country and how happy we are to be part of this country. And it turned out that it wasn't like so cheerful story, actually. Then when my mother was explaining that to me, my father turned to my mother and told her not to speak on these topics with the kids. So I will tell someone in the school that we had this conversation at home and then everyone in the family would be in trouble. That was the second shock, like within the 15 minutes, because then I've learned about the censorship and uh, the topics that are allowed and are not allowed. And uh, it was quite a shock. Till that time, I was very good student with very good behavior and uh, I've been writing poems and uh, some of my poems were published actually in the magazines. And I wrote poems about Lenin. I wrote poem about the arm race, the Cold War. And when I used to write essays or poems about imperialists, it never occurred to me that actually Soviet empire was also an empire and it was also enslaving other nations and uh, so my nation was also enslaved so I was part of this empire when it all occurred to me it was a shock I destroyed all my poems that I wrote before since then I didn't write poems Hadisha's teenage years coincided with the national liberation movement Part of my family was communist, part of the family was opposing the communist regime. So discussions were heated in the family. So I was politically active from the very early youth. So I was engaged in political movements from the school, high school years, and uh, attending rallies, organizing youth even uh, sabotaging the referendum for keeping USSR. Azerbaijan gained independence in 1991, following the fall of the Soviet Union. So everything was changing rapidly in the country. And uh, then the economic system was changing from the command economy. It was turning to the market economy. And nothing was going well, actually, because of the war, because of the corruption, because of all the. So one thing when uh, that made uh, me decide about journalism was when uh, the Soviet government collapsed, my father, as a communist, he was dismissed from his job. And then the newspaper that actually was a the party newspaper of the new government, a journalist came to our house and she interviewed my father and she wrote an article about how with the new political system, they are losing valuable people in the key positions. That was a surprise for me because basically that's supposed to be the pro-government newspaper and supposed to cheer every decision of the government. But no, it was one of the examples of journalists not writing by the script of the government. 
Well, back then, it was the first independent government we had, and uh, that was a bit more democratic. Now we don't see those examples where pro-government newspapers oppose the government decisions. But back then, we had that one example. And it was quite surprising for me because it was right after the collapse of the Soviet regime. We didn't have media freedom back then. And now we had this independent media that was acting independently. And uh, that was the first surprise I had. And then during my student years, I read another book that also basically cemented my decision about journalism. It was the book of the Günther Wallraff, the uh, German journalist who did several investigations, undercover investigations. I became a fan of this journalist. Hadija went on to become a journalist. The first years of journalism, I mostly did what we call easy journalism, like a comment from this person, comment from another person. I happened to do some investigations, but mostly I've been covering the political life. Now it seems to me very easy journalism. Then in 2005, something happened. The editor of Monitor magazine, basically at that time, the only investigative journalist who would publish stories about the president and his family members, he was killed in the entrance of his house with five bullets in the mouth. I decided that, well, we were responsible also because it's easy to silence the only one. When someone is the only one writing about this, by silencing him, they achieve full silence. So by leaving him alone in the field, we made him a target. The kind of journalism he was doing, it was very brave. And everything he was writing was a truth, but maybe not documented as thoroughly as, for example, we are doing now. And uh, he didn't bother about interviewing the government people and asking them for the comments when he was publishing the corruption facts. Well, well, it's not always easy to get the comment from the government in Azerbaijan. They rarely respond to questions, but at least we try every time we publish a story. He wouldn't bother. He was basically fulfilling the main duty of journalists, telling the truth and uncover the hidden truth. He was doing that and tragically he was stopped we never achieved justice for his assassination. And is that when you turned to more investigative journalism, sort of carrying on the work that he had started? Yeah, I decided that we have to continue. We have to do something. And, um, well, I didn't have enough skills. I didn't have enough information sources because he definitely had more sources than any other journalist in the country. I decided to go to trainings to educate myself more about digging for information. And I met Paul Radu and Drew Sullivan. They later created OCCRP, the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. So 
I attended several of the trainings carried out by them. And then we decided to work together. By the time we started working together, I already published a couple investigations about ministers in the government and one investigation about the president's daughter who privatized the public bank without proper procedures. So the private bank was also involved in airline businesses. And uh, so it was a big story. And basically, first such investigations after many years of silence, it was well-documented story about mismanagement and privatization, about nepotism, about corruption. And it made a lot of noise in the country. Well, it also brought a lot of negative attention from the government, along with the other work I've been doing. So as a host in the radio show and as a chief editor of the Radio Liberties local staff. In 2010, Hadija worked on an investigative story about the International Bank of Azerbaijan. She noticed that one of the companies to which the bank was extending credit was registered in Panama. Documents in Panama registry were closed for the public. You could not access the information about ownership of the companies. When I was doing the investigation about an international bank of Azerbaijan, there were some Panamanian companies that were mentioned, and I asked Paul Radu to help me with access to Panamanian registry. And Paul Rado told me that actually it's open now. At this time, open government was gaining momentum internationally. Panama was soon to follow, opening up its public databases of ownership. And then I started looking for popular names in Azerbaijan to look for companies involved with Azerbaijanis there. So when I put search on our president's last name, well, a lot of companies popped out. 11 of them belonged to the president's family members. And uh, from these 11 companies, three of them were the companies actually involved in the mobile phone business in Azerbaijan. So it was the mobile phone company that received preferential terms, received all the preferences during licenses and uh, entering the market. It was actually the company that belonged to President's Daughters. And later, after I published this uh, story, other journalists joined and they found those companies, those 11 companies in other holdings and businesses. So it's opened a Pandora box, actually. It opened a lot of secrets that were hidden before that moment. Later, we found out that those Panamanian companies were involved in gold mining business in Azerbaijan. And then I found a document signed by the president who was ordering the Minister of Environment to prepare the contract on gold mining specifically with the consortium involving his daughter's companies. And then it led actually to very troubling consequences. In 2012, Hadisha was sent a note warning that she would be shamed 
if she continued her investigative work. The note came with intimate photos taken by a hidden camera in her bedroom. And uh, it was showing me and my boyfriend our sexual relationship. And uh, this was a big scandal for Azerbaijan because Azerbaijan is a very conservative country with majority Muslim population and honor killings are still taking place in this country. And uh, being in sexual relationship without being married is a big deal in Azerbaijan. I had to make a decision. I could either step back or fight against it. So I decided the latter. I decided to fight against it. And I published the threat. I made it public that I've been threatened. I wrote all the topics that I've been working on. Like these are the investigations in pipeline and I will finish it, I promised. I put it online on Facebook and then I filed a complaint to the prosecutor's office to start investigation of the crime. So after a week, it was obvious that I'm not stepping back and uh, the video was published on the website. So it was clear that the government prosecutors are not going to investigate this crime. So I decided to do it on my own. I went to the apartment. I haven't been living there anymore. I looked at the angles where the videos were taken I, and I found the cables. I found the cables, then I called the telephone company and asked for an engineer to come because I had some repair work to be done. And then I asked the engineer to explain how this cable appeared here. And the engineer said that he was called to the office and then sent to this address. And uh, some people were waiting in the apartment. They told him to bring the cable, to connect it to the telephone box, to bring it to the apartment doors and uh, with extra 15 meters cable so they could put the cable inside the apartment. He said that he was not paid for the job because it was like normally clients, when they invite phone company engineer, they pay in cash. But in this case, he was not paid and his manager told him not to ask for money. So basically I could not make the government to do the proper investigation. But it was already clear that the government was behind it because the state phone company was involved, the job was not paid, and the videos appearing on the different websites, there was some technical proofs that some of them were coming from the ruling party's newspapers. Hadisha feared the retaliation she experienced would cause other journalists to feel discouraged. I remember the days right after the video was published. I was in a very bad shape. I found out that the cameras were actually installed in bedroom, living room, and bathroom. Bathroom. The moment I got to know that, my body was shut down. For the next 
several days, nine days actually, exactly, I couldn't use the toilet. I've been swelling. My body was shutting down. Like the whole system was in crisis. And one day, my young journalist colleague, a girl, she came. She was actually one of my trainees. And she said, we should stop whining and we should continue our investigations. And the moment she told me that, I cried. I didn't cry after receiving the letter. I forbid myself to cry. But when she came and told me we have to continue working, I cried. She saved my life, basically. My body basically started functioning again. Because, like, I had a feeling that nobody, no woman will do that anymore. And, uh, well, she proved that I was wrong. Like, women in my country are very courageous. So she wanted to keep going. She wanted to do the same thing that I've been doing. And I was, I was very inspired by her. Before this happened to Hadija, two male journalists had been filmed and blackmailed. But unlike Hadija, they didn't fight back. I decided to fight back and uh, it was a big international scandal. I made it public. I made sure that the whole world knows about it because these things need to be punished. Impunity, that makes them bolder and bolder. And I decided that I have to fight back because otherwise it will not stop. You can kill a journalist and not get punished. You can beat journalists, you, you will not be punished. You can put a camera in her bedroom, you will not be punished for that. So that needs to be ended. And uh, it's important that the international bodies, international organizations, they raise these issues all the time. They ask questions to the governments, responsible governments all the time to make sure that the impunity is ended. In 2020, Hadija filed and won a case in the European Court of Human Rights. The case forced her government to start a new investigation. But even before that case was settled, Hadija was still doing her work. I've been doing a lot of work. I've been involved into fighting against this intrusion to privacy and blackmail crime. I've been doing international advocacy for political prisoners. I've been doing the investigations, like I published in 2012 alone, I published four investigations. It's really a big number for anyone. And then in 2014, I published this story about the mobile phone company, how the president's family was the owner of yet another mobile phone company. So basically with this investigation, it was clear that president's family controls all mobile communication sector in the country. That year, Hadisha was arrested. They forced a former colleague of mine to testify against me, 
saying that I've driven him to suicide. He actually attempted a suicide because his girlfriend stopped their relationship. It was like absolutely absurd thing because that was a person I didn't see for nine months or more. So I didn't communicate with him or something. And he was forced to testify that it was because I didn't let anyone to employ him. Well, I didn't have that power, first of all. Most of the media market is actually controlled by the government. So, like, there is no way that I could control his employment chances. But later we have learned that he was actually forced to uh, give that testimony by the Ministry of National Security. He was taken hostage, kept in the hospital of the Ministry of National Security during the initial part of the investigation, so he would not change his testimony. And when he got discharged from the hospital, he went public and spoke out about how he was forced to testify against me. So when it was clear that this charge is not going to work, they opened another criminal case while keeping me in prison. And uh, that was about the taxes in of the Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. I had nothing to do with financial issues of the Radio Free Europe. Radio Free Europe is non-profit and is not supposed to pay profit tax, but the government decided that they have to and that I was responsible for some period of not paying the profit tax by a non-profit organization. They claimed that if I wasn't registered as a foreign journalist in foreign ministry, but worked for the foreign radio, then I was an illegal interpreter. There was no such law in Azerbaijan supporting that claim, supporting that charge. But they still did. Hadija was sentenced to seven and a half years in prison. Initially, the plan was to keep me in prison for many years, but there was a huge international campaign to release me. And uh, there was a big project, which was actually called Khadija Project. 100 journalists from all over the world joined together and they continued investigations. They continued investigation that I was working on and then they published new ones. So every single week, there was an investigation about corruption in Azerbaijan, mostly about the ruling family. So it was clear that by putting me in prison, they could not achieve this silence. They couldn't stop you. They, they couldn't stop investigations. So that's where I want to go back to the case of Enmar Hussainov, the reason why I feel guilty. Elmar Hussainov didn't have that network of support. That was our fault. Hadija was eventually released under parole after spending almost 18 months in prison. What do you think about the state of journalism today? Do you think that group of 100 journalists would still be able to come together? Well, yes, there were several such cases when uh, journalists came together Unfortunately, one of those projects was after Daphnis 
assassination Daphne Caruana Galizia. Daphne Caruana Galizia was the journalist who led the Panama Papers investigation in Malta. After uncovering corruption, she was killed by a car bomb in 2017. When she was assassinated, a number of journalists, they started a project and I was part of it. And uh, we did investigations revealing the facts that Daphne was talking about, that Daphne was working on. And uh, so Malta had a lot of international attention after Daphne Caruana Galicia's attention. And then there was another similar project. It was after the murder of Jan Kuzak, uh, the Slovak journalist. Jan Kuzak investigated tax fraud in Slovakia, looking specifically at politicians. He and his fiance were killed in their home in 2018. His colleagues, they got together and they investigated his assassination. And uh, thanks to their efforts, it was clear who ordered the investigation. Unfortunately, in both cases, in Daphne's case and Jan Kuszak's case, there is still justice to be achieved. Hadija continued to see her privacy violated, even after she was released from prison. In May 2021, my parole was ended. So I was free to leave the country. So I went to see uh, my sister and meet my colleagues. And there my colleagues told me about the Pegasus that was a spying program that some governments, including the Azerbaijani government, was using to spy on us. And uh, they told me that according to leaked information, my number was in the list. So I gave my phone for forensic examination by Amnesty Tech Group, and they did a forensic examination, and it turned out that it was infected. So, um, I don't know, after the 2012, I live with the notion that, like, no privacy is possible for me. But this was a little bit too much, I mean. Well, it's not even your privacy that's at risk, then. It's everyone you're talking to yeah, through your phone is absolutely. also. Absolutely, I'm a journalist, I I have to speak to sources. I have to speak to some whistleblowers contact me. And uh, it seems like I've been putting everyone's lives at risk. And it wasn't only me. I mean, people in my vicinity, my niece, the taxi driver who I've been using most frequently, the friends who would come, people who had relationship with, they all have been under monitoring. Now I'm using like three gadgets. One, I don't put SIM cards into my smartphones. It creates a lot of technical problems. I have to think about safety of others every time. So what I'm doing is actually I'm announcing everyone that look, if you come close, you can be compromised as well. So it's like, having a disease that can infect everyone. So I'm basically announcing that I'm contagious and you can be a victim too. It's very difficult. It is very difficult. 
I never had any proper psychological support. But, I mean, I'm trying to bury everything. But basically, the life, I've been denied a right to live my own life. And what do you think international organizations like the Open Government Partnership or other multilaterals, what should they be doing to help protect journalists and to help get justice? What do you think needs to happen? Well, one of the things that is important is to achieve more transparency in the countries. The registry should be open and available for everyone. And the work of journalists should not be that difficult, that risky, that elite work. There should be open access to information so everyone can see the truth. The truth should not be that difficult to access. In Azerbaijan, the ownership of companies is a secret. We only can get information about the ownership of the companies if that company goes to some open jurisdiction and there are some international movement related to the company. So we can see the documents by accessing them through the other jurisdictions. It's worth noting here that Azerbaijan was once a member of the Open Government Partnership. It is now suspended. Or offshore companies, uh, offshore jurisdictions, they need to be accessible. The ownership of companies should be accessible because, like, someone who doesn't have criminal intentions would not hide their names. So there should be open access to information about the ownership of companies. Are you optimistic about what happens to the state of journalism next? Do you see any bright spots out there? Well, absolutely. There are two things that concern me. It's one of the things is that we get a lot of support from civic hackers that we are grateful for. The civic hackers who help journalists with leaking information, with uh, hacking the systems that make the unavailable information for us available. We are grateful for that, but there is a risk of trapped into the leak-only thing. So it is a bit of a muddy road to go. So this is one of the things. Second, I'm very optimistic about journalism because journalists are becoming more skilled and uh, the technology allows us to improve our work, to get more access, to do more work in shorter time. But also we have now the networks that can help us. So I'm very optimistic. It's good to be a journalist in the 21st century. Today, Hadija continues to relentlessly fight for justice, despite being intimidated and persecuted still by the government. It's journalists like Hadija and many others that are helping in the fight to renew democracy worldwide.
that's it for today's episode. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For the latest updates on open government, you can follow OGP on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Before we go, we'd like to thank OGP and our producers at Human Group Media for making this podcast possible. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you join us again for our next episode.